Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have Dan Lyons with Lab Rats. Um, and he will be in conversation with Karen Grigsby-Bates. Um, but before I introduce these two, I do have to brag for a second about how much I love my job, and I suspect these two also love theirs. Um, I do wish I were paid in $1,000 bills, but I'm glad for the gratitude and you know satisfaction that I get working in a place that uh, is a community space and um, has positive work ethics. Um, so please support us. Um, Karen Grigsby-Bates, uh, you know her, you love her. She is uh, the LA correspondent for NPR, one of those calm, smart voices educating you while you are in traffic. Uh, she has written for the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Essence, and Vogue, as well as other places. She's the author of three books herself. And um, in her NPR work, she consistently highlights authors, which I happen to really like. Um, Dan Lyons is a journalist, a novelist, and a screenwriter whose work centers around tech and its impact impact on society. He's a New York Times bestseller and a frequent keynote speaker. He's a writer on HBO's award-winning comedy series, Silicon Valley, and uh, his work appears in the New York Times, GQ, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker. Also, he was interviewed on NPR by Terry Gross for Fresh Air. And um, in a personal bid for my heart, he does call Jeff Bozos a modern-day Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, Lab Rats, his latest book, which we're going to hear about today, has been widely praised. It has been called passionate, caustic, darkly funny, sardonic, insightful, frequently entertaining, sometimes harrowing, fascinating, thought-provoking, hilarious, lively, marvelous, hysterical, and a must-read. Let's please give them a warm round of applause. Thank you. Thanks for... Yeah. Um, do you want to, yeah, you probably want to start. That, that thing about it's been called a must read, that was by me. So, uh, you know. No, uh, well, I'm here with the, uh, with the gallery because <coughs> your publisher never sent me a real book, but that's okay. They didn't? Oh, okay. I don't, I don't need it for anything. I'm just going to this a little bit to make okay. sure it sounds good. Okay. So, this book is about work and how work has changed over the years. And I want to start out by telling you how I started out working. So I got out of college in the early 70s. I went to work for a nonprofit for a year. And then I went to work for Time Incorporated in New York, big Time and Life building that is now no longer the Time and Life building because it's been bought and merged and changed all over for many times. But when I went there, <laughs> yeah. I didn't make a ton of money, but we had five weeks of vacation up front and a week that they called dark week between Christmas and New Year's because a lot of the editors would go to Antigua and places like that. And so, you know, so we got the, the rollback benefit of that. Uh, we had profit sharing, which has since gone away. Um, there was an indefinite amount of sick days, so I could stay home and be sick for three months if I wanted to. I mean, there was no 
cap on it, and people did not abuse it, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. I took classes at the School of Visual Arts and the New School, and time totally repaid me for that, and if I wanted to get a degree, they would pay for that and give me a little bit of time off to like write my thesis. The health plan was very generous, and they actually had a medical unit on site up in the lofty reaches of the tower that was always on call. So if you were out on assignment and fell and broke your elbow because you were chasing somebody to interview, they could x-ray it up there, you know, and then send you to a bigger hospital. People came in their 20s and they worked until they decided to retire. And how did we get from that to where we are now? Because a lot of that is what we're talking about in here. Yeah, yeah, and I had a similar trajectory. Mm -hmm. I think probably you guys did too. I, I don't know. And it'd be interesting to hear your stories because uh, um, I, I, I spent the last two years collecting people's stories and it's, it's amazing. And we have a lot, the stories often have a lot in common. So yes, I had a similar experience and even much later, the breaking point I think of is I went to work at Forbes magazine in mm -hmm. 1998. So it's the height of the dot-com bubble. And you remember for a while, magazines were like this thick. They were like books. They were selling lots of ads. And even then, which is fairly, you know, like yesterday, really, um, we had an old-fashioned pension plan. Yeah. Forbes was family-owned. The Forbes family yeah. just owned this magazine. Yeah. Malcolm had died, and his sons were running it. And, and on top of that, we had a 401K with a really generous match, great health insurance, mm -hmm. and... Yeah, we had a, a little gym up on the top floor with a, a trainer who ran the gym, and you could go up and he'd train you or whatever. It was like, you know, we had, yeah, we had a nice little cafeteria. You know, and, and then I went to Newsweek, which was in decline. But even then, the other perk, I don't know if you had this at time, at Newsweek it was like the black cars, like the limos. Okay. And, <laughs> and there was always someone in the office who yeah. had the, the booklet with the, 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 you had to get a thing to call a, a car. A and then car service, anywhere. But yeah. they would just give them out like candy. And so you just grab, uh, they'd be like, remember those fleets of town cars would be rolling around Manhattan. You could just go anywhere you wanted. Yeah, if you worked <laughs> late, they didn't want you like on public transportation, God forbid. So mm -hmm. they would put you in a car and send you home. Yeah, and yeah, meals, meals yeah. as the magazines were closing and stuff. So all of that stuff was actually standard, like even as recently as like 30 years ago. Yeah, well, not even 98 wasn't that long ago, but... And then all of a sudden it went away. Well, the, we had the, the crash, the dot-com bubble crashed. Right. And, it, it, and they we're talking about print media. So print media is a sort of a special case. Right. But um, Well, some of those places had merged by that time. So that time, for instance, became Time Warner. And for a yeah. short, scary time, Time Warner AOL. Oh, right, um, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that, and you, you start to see those benefits go away. And you start to see people be in my observation, less happy with their work. Yeah. Um, and they weren't being paid any less, but I think the pressure to work all the time really existed then, and so or that was the beginning of it. Mm. And that made, that made us less happy. Yeah, I think there were a couple turning points. So one was like around the year 2000, 2001, we had the, the dot-com bubble and then the crash. And then... At the same time, the media business really got disrupted. We, we, and we mm -hmm. could see it coming. If you were a print journalist, you knew the end is near. Um, and the, the simple explanation of that is that for a while, we all thought, well, we'll just we'll, we'll go to 
digital. We'll, we'll do Newsweek online. It'll be the same thing, and except that when you, once I did a story about the Huffington Post while I was at Newsweek and mm -hmm. came back from the Huffington Post realizing like how much trouble we were in, mm -hmm. you know, and it was because uh, the Huffington Post never made money. They never made a profit. Um, but all they, because all they had were ads, and there was an, uh, an expression, people went from uh, analog dollars to digital dimes. So <laughs> the ads just didn't pay, you didn't make as much on yeah. online ads. They're not worth yeah. anything. Nobody looks at them. They don't click on them. And then they went to digital pennies. So the ad part of the business collapsed. And then we also had a subscription business in print where you had to, maybe you had to pay every year some amount of money. This, and that basically offset the cost of producing the thing, right? And Huffington Post didn't, and, and online publications didn't have that. So they had no subscription revenue stream. They just had the ads, and the ads collapsed almost nothing. So it became a very uh, thin margin business, or no margin business. And the, the big print companies like Newsweek, which was owned by the Washington Post, got spun off. But they just had too much of a, a, uh, an expense base that you couldn't support it on that on that income of, mm -hmm. a, of, a, of a digital property. And uh, so that blew up. I think another big turning point was, oddly enough, like 2007 or eight when the iPhone, the first iPhone came out. Yeah. And suddenly now you had ubiquitous connectivity and you had, and then the, the connectivity got better when you had high speed. The first iPhone was, didn't really work that well. Yeah. But it was also, 2000 was a big turning point for the, the home internet, because until then, you sort of remember, maybe the dial-up modem, it was still kind of flaky. Mm -hmm. And uh, from about 2000 on, you had the fiber optic uh, backbone was fast enough now, the computers were fast enough, you had uh, ethernet connectivity, or you even had then you know, Wi-Fi connectivity at home, and suddenly, that, that thing, that platform is, I, as I was writing this book, I was looking at a lot of charts, and I kept seeing this bump right around 2000. So you see the GDP of India for decades goes like this, and then yeah. 2000 goes whoop, and then the GDP of China for whoop, and GDP of the United States from 2000 forward grows like 30%. It still grows. And then so you see, yeah, when th these technologies appear and become ubiquitous and cheap and free, storage became cheap and free, so you could, and then you could, the Internet got fast enough, you could move photos. Remember when you had to, if you tried to download a movie, you couldn't really do it, and now... <laughs> take as long yeah. as the movie took to watch. So yeah. one thing was the, the basic infrastructure became fast, and then the mobile devices allowed you to never be disconnected, and everybody was walking around like this, and then and your boss expects are. you... And you know, why, yeah. why, you know they, they, over and over as doing this book, I kept hearing people say, you know, I, uh, we're expected to, you know, re reply within half an hour, and mm -hmm. McKinsey consultants can never be offline, and mm -hmm. so, and we're not anyway. They're constantly on, mm -hmm. and so your work never ends, which I think is, we we almost forget now, right? Like that when you, you can actually disconnect and not have anything. But don't you have that, when you're watching a movie from before the internet, and they have to, they can't like there are whole movies where the plot turns on the fact that. You have they to just, go find somebody. You didn't have a smartphone? And, yeah. Like if they had yeah. an iPhone, the whole movie would fall apart. But yeah. because they didn't, they were like, oh, I can't get to a phone, you know. And, they, yeah. and you couldn't, you know. But also, and you look at that world and you think, like my kids look at that and they're like, what's that, right? I have 13-year-old twins. It's called like, a landline, so. Yeah, or phone, phone booths, you know, yeah. you know pay phones. But, but you also, we also forget that, what did you do at five or six, you know, when you worked at time, you, you went home. Maybe you worked late on clothes night, right? Yeah. Thursday night or yeah. whatever it was. But yeah. 
Newsweek, you know, the same deal. Like, and then you, you went home and yeah. you, you did stuff. I used to say I worked in a startup with some, a lot of, the average age was 26. Most people were 22, 23. Mm. And, and they all wanted to have like, you know, the beer pong and the ping pong and the beer bashes and this and that and the candy wall. And um, I used to say like, you know, it's not like my generation, like we were boring. I never actually played beer pong, but like we went to college <laughs> together. We had fun in our day, but we, we played beer pong at home. Like we, we went home and then we went drinking on the weekend or at night. With we your, didn't go to work. With your real friends, uh, yeah, not with your teammates real friends. from work. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to go to work and like get, you know, party with work. I, we went to work and we did work and then we went home and yeah. we partied. Now it's like you go to work and you party and then you're, but you're working, but then you also never can You're never disconnected and you're never out of that. Yeah. So Silicon Valley, sort of, I was out in uh, Palo Alto when it, it was first kind of sort of starting out, but it was like late 70s, and in fact, one of my jobs at that point was doing market research, and I would cold call these people. I was working for a place called uh, Strategic Strategies International or something like that, yeah. um, and I had to ask people if they had the availability, would they consider buying or renting this magic machine that would let you send paper documents cross town in this this quickly, and they kept it, it was a fax machine, and nobody had heard of faxes before because they had just HP had just sort of invented them, and they wanted to see if there was a market for them, and uh, people were like, yeah, well that doesn't exist, and then all of a sudden there were faxes, and they were vomiting out you know long pages of stuff all the time that somebody had to tend to, you know, pick up, sort through, uh, cut the paper, all the rest of that. And I thought, that, that's not going to last that long because people are going to get tired of them. Well, the technology changed, and so then it used regular paper and an ink cartridge so it wasn't so messy. And it happened, you know, fairly quickly. At one point, it felt like, you know, by the mid-'80s, everybody had a fax. Everybody had a fax, or all, you know, businesses had a fax because you had to have one by then. And it changed the pace of doing business, just that one little thing, just the way the iPhone did. Those things changed the pace of doing business, but they didn't make doing business any more satisfying, I don't think. Do you? No. And uh, it just occurred to me that we're at just the right age where I remember, yeah, when the fax was this new thing, you didn't know what it was. I now have kids who don't know what a fax is because what was <laughs> that? Like you would, you would yeah. print something out and yeah. then you would you'd, yeah. you'd send it. Like, why, you know, but, that, but I actually think that I remember, too, in the 80s, I left daily journalism and went to work at a place called PC Week, which was mm -hmm. you know, a trade magazine about the personal computer, which was so new then that mm -hmm. you know, they had special magazines about it. And, um, and at the time, we had like these very primitive, you know, those old IBM PCs. And uh, yeah, those big mm -hmm. clunky things. It was DOS, then it was Windows. But and, and Word Perfect still is the best program. Yeah, Word Perfect was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and and then you had um, maybe Lotus One Two Three, and it was, so these were tools that you use. And like Lotus One Two Three was a big thing because they let financial analysts just churn through numbers really fast. So they mm -hmm. became more productive. The interesting thing now is if you look at the workplace and like where I was working. I wrote about my last book at, and, and places I've been visiting, mm -hmm. is that a lot of people describe that 
I used to use technology, and now technology uses me. Right. Like, right. I come into work, and yeah. I'm managed by a, by algorithms. I'm measured by them. I'm monitored by them. Mm-hmm. And almost no matter what job you do, you, you're filling out sort of online forms, and you're being... Targeted. The machine is in charge, and you're like this meat puppet on the end of the algorithm, and you're trying to do things. So you now, uh, there's a, I can write about a company here that, that does hiring using AI, and it's, again... To interview people? Yeah, so here's the deal. So these guys, 10 years ago, had an idea that, geez, you know, if you're Bank of America and you need to hire hundreds and hundreds people. Okay. of tellers, right? Yeah. Or, or, you know, um, and you want to interview just kids coming out of college. And you can only go to, you can only physically send recruiters to so many colleges. Mm-hmm. What if the kids could just take an interview on video, and now you, you don't have to travel a place, you just, the Bank of America recruiters sit and look at a laptop and can oh, so see you. Oh, actually Skyping with you or yeah, something. Yeah, they're like Skype, but, yeah. it's not, but it's not live, it's not real time. Mm-hmm. You send it and, you know, you do the answers, send it off, and then they can just look at them all, but so they can look at... Instead of uh, a thousand candidates, they can get ten thousand candidates. Like you know what I mean? But then, well, it wasn't even that. It was probably instead of a, instead of five hundred, you could look at a thousand, right? Because mm-hmm. you still have to. Mm-hmm. Oh, there they. Mm-hmm. But you still have to look at it. Then they thought, geez, what if we could train AI to look at the video of you? Like I don't have to sit here, and I I can program the AI to look look at your facial points. I forget what the term is, but you know your facial movements. It analyzes that. It makes an immediate transcript of what you're saying, of all your answers, and then studies the words and sees, does an analysis of what words you use. That would be and the so AI decides. <laughs> so you can look at now 10,000 people yeah. and then still pick 500 that go on to a human. <laughs> and so, th- and there's now, the reason I even found out about that is that there's now a business that sprung up to train kids coming out of college to interview well with the AI. Because you have to please the AI. So it's like SAT AI. prep. So you're, yeah. you're trying to game the system, basically. And, and the people on the other side say it's impossible to gain. You can't figure out what the AI is looking for. But on the other hand, you can at least learn to uh, how to speak, how to move your face. You know what they're, they're looking for animation. I mm-hmm. guess they're you know. So there's a now a, an industry of training people to please the AI. So you're you're hired essentially by AI. There's now a whole bunch of uh, activity in the field of creating AI-based managers. So you, one guy who's developing it is, runs the biggest hedge fund in the world, so you can imagine the sort of mm-hmm. ethics and practices that are going to get baked into the AI, right? And, he, and it's the most brutal hedge fund in the world, um, um, Bridgewater Capital. I mean, it's oh. a crazy, insane place. Yeah. Yeah. But they think so highly of themselves that they want to bake it into AI, and they said that Tech companies are already all over them for this. They would love this. And his metaphor is, it's like ways, but for business decisions. So just like, you might know how to get something, but you rely on ways to kind of help you find Give the you best shortcuts, way. Yeah. You're going to have a business ways that says, who should, which one of these people should we fire? Or, or preemptively says, you know yeah. what, you should fire this one, you should promote that one, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and even better stories, there's a a guy here in LA, and you can look up the story because his name is Ibrahim Diallo. Oh, are you Ibrahim? Dude, you him? Wow. Oh my God. Wow. Stand up for a second. You should come tell your story. Oh, this is so great. Yeah, this guy's awesome. Yeah. Oh man, this is. 
<laughs> I know we became friends when I I, we, I interviewed him. Wow! Oh, this is so cool. This is like so exciting. I, I'll will tell you. No, it's not fair, no, right? Tell it, tell it. He wrote this amazing. This guy wrote this amazing essay. Did you publish it on Medium or where was it? But it went totally viral, right? Who picked like the BBC picked it up, and it was basically I got. Just come up here. Come up here. Just say. Come up here. Say. Yeah. 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 Come up here. There's only six of us here, so. So you know, I mean, like, dude, you might as well. Like, it's stupid for me. Hey. This guy sit sit down for a second. Oh wow. No, you're not for the rest of the thing. Okay. So. I was not expecting. So I don't know this story. So you have to share the story. This is the best. Okay. Wow, I did not expect this, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, you're among friends. Okay, well, uh, well, I wrote on my blog about my experience at a particular company that I didn't name mm -hmm. exactly. Um, I was working as an engineer there, and uh, one beautiful morning I get a call from my recruiter, and they tell me, oh my God, is everything okay? And I was like... Yeah, everything is okay. Of course, I know everything's okay. <laughs> yeah, everything is okay. So yeah. I, I get to work and then try to pass my key card to get into the building, and then it just beeps. I'm like, oh, well, <sighs> that's fine. And I pass it again, it beeps, and then the security guard looks at me. Yeah. Pretends like there's nothing. He's like, nah, it's fine. And then just press a button, and I get in. So for me, it's like, okay, that's odd, but maybe the guy was just playing mm -hmm. a trick on me. But uh, the more I started doing my work for the day, the more I started noticing how I was getting locked out of some uh, important systems that I use every day. Yes, yeah. I'm a software program. So these are things that I build myself and all. So, but it was a little odd that like, you know, my main machine was blocking me. But uh, eventually, uh, I started, uh, they started getting emails mm -hmm. about me like, oh, blocked his, this part of the system, blocked that part of the system. And even my actual job, everyday job, I could not perform anymore. Mm -hmm. So I had to go to my manager. She's like, is everything okay? She's like, yeah, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And then my recruiter sends me another message saying like, oh my God, are you fired? Did they let you into the building? I'm like, uh, no. And then I go back to my manager and they tell me the same thing. No, everything is okay on our side. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, um, once I'm, I'm completely locked out of, the, of all the system things, uh, uh, all the access, I, you know, I go to the director of uh, my department and I'm like, okay, I think there's something wrong here. Mm -hmm. We go there and then she looks at it, everything and she's like, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm the director. I'll handle that. And she makes a call to the support team and says, all right, guys, just turn everything back on. And like less than five minutes later, she gets an email saying that, yeah, he's fired. <laughs> They hadn't and, even let her know. Yeah, and the thing is, the person that sends the email is not like someone she knows. Right. It's more like management group mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they send an email and say, oh, yeah, he's uh, fired. And she's like, no, don't worry about it. We obviously need you here. Yeah, we're the people. We know you work here. You didn't murder someone yesterday. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Okay, you come back to work the next day. And... Um, I came back the next day and every day because, you know, I worked there. All my systems were getting locked, but I had some work around since I designed those systems. <laughs> I, <laughs> I still had to build the stuff. I still had to do the work. Um, this until, is crazy. Yeah. Until one day I came to the parking lot and, uh, you know, they... They wouldn't let you yeah, in? Yeah, they wouldn't let me in. Like, that, I, I scanned my card again and it just says no, no, and then there's cars, cars piling up behind me and I'm panicking. Security guards comes to me, he's like, 
passes his cart and <laughs> lets me and in. Lets I'm, I'm ashamed, so I drive and just try to hide somewhere where nobody can see me. Mm. Um, but I get into the building, uh, same thing, the security guard over there give me like a temporary pass. I get in, go start doing my work, and I'm like, you know what, this, everybody knows I work here, so it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, a machine will come and kick me out. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't a machine, but the security guards that I know mm -hmm. that came to my desk, and he was sort of embarrassed because, you know, we know each other, and he's like, yeah, um, I was uh, instructed to escort you out of the building. Oh, no, it was the machine fired me. <laughs> Technically. Yes, yeah. that's the thing. Because even though those emails, like everybody saw them, it's like, yes, these are the things. So what do we do now? Mm -hmm. Nobody could do anything. Nobody could do anything. There was nobody you can call and say, hey, stop the process. And ev it had yeah. taken on a life of its own. Yeah, it took a. No, no, there was not a person who's like, okay, let me activate it. But it, not only had no human fired you, mm -hmm. nobody had told your humans no. that they thought that you were dispensable. Yeah. No. You know, you've got your boss and your boss's yeah. boss saying, that's crazy. Um, after, hmm? no, no, the blog, blog was, was written, after yeah, left. it was written a year after. Like, I thought, because <laughs> when well, it was happening, it, it was kind of fun. I would say, like, let me see where that goes. Fun. Because, <laughs> you know, like, obviously they're not going to kick me out, yeah. but they did. Um, well, turns out it was the, like it was still the system. Like during the transition, they had to update a few things here and there, but they left a little gap in there, uh, some f little flag they were supposed to turn on that yeah, this guy is supposed to continue working for us. So there was, yes, yeah. So instead of seeing like, yeah, at some point I was just they came to my desk with you know right we need to with boxes so you could put your stuff in. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well. Nah. No. I, I don't have any faith that people but, I mean, would take it. Yeah. You know, and be that they would prevail because it's such a weighted in favor of business environment, especially mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was so many things happening at the time because I didn't think I would leave, but I ended up leaving. Uh, what they. Uh, it based, I, they could not hire me back because the system was just, I guess, too. Because the they system, could not, system yeah. had locked them out. From yeah, doing they were. That. They were not. They didn't know what to do. So it took a while. It took three weeks for the system to thoroughly fire me, deactivate all my access, wipe me out of the company. Then they told me, "All right, now let's you come back." Well, it's the same name, but <laughs> mm -hmm. come back and then let's hire you all over again. And then they had to go through the whole process of hiring me back, uh, setting up my uh, deposit account and uh, all the, ev everything. So that. Yeah, I did that. And uh, at the time, because the thing is, I didn't have someone to blame. Like, who fired me? At it's the time, at least. Something to blame. Yeah, like, yeah. you have to have, like, a name. The, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the director was on my side. The manager was on my side. Yeah. The, everybody was on my side. So it was hard to pinpoint who's the enemy here. Mm. But uh, the security guard was following his instruction. He received an email that a rogue employee is in the building. Please go and escort him out. And he did his job. A rogue employee. <laughs> <laughs> and the other point you made to me was that you left, you started your own company. Yeah. But it, as a software programmer, mm -hmm. this experience taught you something. 
Oh, it, it definitely taught me in the way that I designed my own application. And, uh, and ironically, today I am building an AI. Like, <laughs> I am, Are you really? Yeah, I, yes. am, I am working at a company where I'm building an AI, but you know, this experience gives me, like, I would say it's kind of like an edge. Valuable to, insight. Yeah. yeah. Like a, a way, for example, that when, some, like when decisions are made, a human needs to be able to say which decisions were made. Where, where in the process is it? Uh, like, if there's 10 steps, how many steps have been taken? You know Can we roll it back? Yeah. Because nobody has communication skills. Nobody, we're all connected, but none of us are close. No. That, yeah. Mm. Most of the time, yeah. We don't know how AI works. <laughs> Yeah. Open the pod yeah. bay doors, Hal. Yeah, it's based on my story. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was science fiction at the time. Oh, sure. So, yeah. I, I, I took so yeah. No, no, no. I was just thinking, as you were talking, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking, there's a really good documentary in this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, because okay, there's people getting hired by machines, managed by machines, and then I, I always like to cabin, and then there's even a guy who got fired by a machine. And there's a great BBC story that says, like, meet the man who was fired by a machine, right? Did, like, huge traffic, millions of hits around the world. You became, like, this celebrity. Con- in Germany. In Germany, really? <laughs> big in Germany. That, like, you're big in Germany. Yeah. But it's, <clears throat> and, and so, I but tracked you him down on email, and then we talked. Yeah, and it's like... Machines aren't taking care of anybody. They're doing this, you know, hire, review, fire. Yeah. fire, but they don't know when your parent has died. They don't know, you know, whether you've got mm. four wisdom teeth that need to come out. They don't, they're not, like, the operational part of being human, they're not up to that task yet. Right? Yet. Yet. Yeah. And um, there's an interesting guy named David Heinemeyer Hansen, who I, I also write about in the book. Do you, Ibrahim, do you know who that is, this guy, DHH, who yes. he created Ruby on Rails? So he, and he also writes. He's like you. He's a techie, but he also writes almost philosophically about technology and its impact. He's a really interesting guy. Um, which, by the way, we should give out the address for your blog, too, because you write... What is, what is your blog address? idialo.com. Okay. Yeah, D-I-A-L-L-O-U. Is that right? No, you, Diallo. Okay. Look at you knew how to spell it. D, it's I, then D-I-A-L-L-O dot com. Okay. And it's, there are a handful, like I found, covering tech as a reporter, you find occasionally that techie, the techie guys or women, Susan Fowler's another one, right, who are brilliant programmers and engineers, but then also are really super thoughtful about what they're doing. They're mm. not many, right, but they're um, um, amazing to read because they are in the front lines using this stuff. But, oh, um, you were t- oh, talking about AI not being able to empathize, right? Or mm-hmm. I had a thought and now I lost it. <laughs> no, Too much was, multitask. Yeah. Um, well, how can you be so connected and still not communicate? I mean, we have issues of relating. Right. 
that's the question is, how can we be so connected and yet we still don't communicate? Well, so Sherry Turkle, this professor at MIT, wrote a great book called Alone Together mm -hmm. about, about exactly Everybody's this. Everybody's so, sitting on the sofa <clears throat> looking at their individual screens. And we think social media brings yeah. us together and then we find out that social media actually does sometimes the opposite or actually makes us more alienated. And mm -hmm. I, the one example I like from the workplace, and I, I saw this uh, at a couple places where um, you use Slack. And Ugh. you know you have Slack. I hate you, Slack. And this is Slack groups and Slack chats. And the phenomenon I always find amazing is you and I sit next to each other, doing this, and, and we're talk, we're slacking, yeah. we're talking to each other, and then yeah. we're ha, 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 like you say something, I and we laugh. Like you'd hear people laugh, but you don't know they're having a silent conversation. Yeah. But I think that's really dehumanizing and alienating. And it, it in a, you know, you don't want to lean too much into that. But there's something about that that is not really normal and you could just get up and go like Tom Peters in, in the 70s and 80s wrote In Search of Excellence and his he had this very simple idea that he saw at HP called um, management by walking around or management by wandering oh. around MBWA and actually knowing what's going on on the floor that you're responsible for what so an amazing I know you're having, idea and I know that you're having your wisdom teeth out next week because you told me a couple of weeks ago and then when you come back I'm like how was that and and I know who your kids are, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it makes me want to work harder. It makes me care about the company. Yeah, right? And, and now, when I worked at a startup, we had a CMO, right? So the chief marketing officer, which you, um, <clears throat> who didn't like to talk to us. And he, I think he, because he, he was always managing up. He, his, his attention was mm -hmm. always up above. But, and I had never had a boss that didn't at least occasionally come into the, we worked in this little pit of a room. Like come in, even the CEO would come in and be like, "Hey, what's it going, bloggers? What's happening?" But this guy never did. Hmm. He didn't he? Didn't have interpersonal skills, and he didn't want to talk to us. And never took us to lunch. Like usually, how your boss will round you up every few months and like, "Hey, we're all going out for lunch, and it's on me." And you know, never did that. I had one conversation with him in 20 months at this company, and it was because I happened to be in the cafeteria early one day, and I was having a bowl of cereal, and he was too, and we talked a little weirdly. About how much you love <clears throat> Lucky Charms. Yeah, like we didn't have much of a... But then he would send around these... There's a, a tool called Tiny Pulse that mm. uh, it's used to survey employees and get the pulse of the organization, and it's automated, and the machine sends you a question like... Do you feel engaged at work? Or, you know, do you feel your boss respects you? And on a one to five thing. And 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 I said, and it was like, no. I feel like I, I no, like I like my boss couldn't even bother to walk down the hall and talk to me. Yeah. And he hired you to do this. Mm -hmm. And then he would gather up all the data and they would look like we moved from a four point two or like in, you know, what is it? N NPS, right? Net promoter score, like, oh, we have a seven point one. Oh, the, you know, morale would go down and they'd be like, what can we try? One, one week's question was, um, <clears throat> what could we do to make you happier? And I was like, more surveys. Just like, <laughs> make every day. And I would make, or I'd send ridiculous ideas, like, let's have Sundays on Monday. Like, every Monday we make hot fudge Sundays. And they'd be like, who is it? Because it's anonymous. Like, who is this doing this on the other end? You know? but, but yeah, it was really, in, it was the opposite of the way you felt. They felt like, oh, yeah. God. And they really thought this was innovative. And like, they were really proud of like, we care so much, we subscribe to Tiny Pulse because that's, we just want your happiness. It's so important. You know? Or we want to give you team building <clears throat> exercises to make you more cohesive as a team. You started yeah. out in the beginning of the book talking about a uh, exercise of making a duck out of Legos, yeah. a bag of Legos. What was the point of that? And why were companies deciding, in, in Silicon Valley, deciding, yeah, this is a way for our people to see 
to see their work in a new way. Uh, right, and it's not just Silicon Valley. Procter & Gamble is a huge, huge uh, adopter of Lego serious play. They love this stuff. Lego serious play. Yeah, oh, yeah it sounds yeah, like yeah. an oxymoron right there. No, man. Lego like, serious okay, play. Okay, so yeah, this is, so it's part of a larger corporate religion called Agile, which I'm sure you know all mm. about, right? And Agile began as a way to write software faster. It used to use this waterfall method, and it was very clunky, and these projects would take years, and by the time they were done, they would be obsolete. And so these guys in 1999 got together and created a little simple manifesto that just said, we're going to simplify this thing. We're going to do short sprints. We're going to stay in touch with the business user, the, 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 whoever's going to use this stuff all mm -hmm. along, so we don't get – it was just that. And then it became a way to be agile everything. There are agile lawyers, agile bloggers, agile marketing. There's 4,000 books on the catalog of a, a certain online bookseller that I don't use the name in places, hallowed spaces like this. But, you know, <laughs> so, but there are like thousands of books about agile. And what's more, they contradict each other because nobody, it's, it's morphed and broken off into different forms of agile. Anyway, and, and the vast majority of agile implementations utterly fail. So you put the entire organization through this wrenching change, and in the end, they Agile end up doing the same. No, no, no. Okay, no. so then I'm getting. I'm sorry. It's a big wind up to it, the Lego thing. So as part of that, a lot of Le uh, there's now an entire industry of Agile trainers, like hundreds of thousands of these people around the world. A lot of them then go out and get another certification to be a Lego serious play trainer, and they use that as like the opening round of the Agile training. So you all go in and you spend a day playing with Agile with Legos. And um, miss, don't laugh now. No, no. So and, and um, it's Lego serious play, you know. And um, well, and <laughs> right, but these are this, this isn't this. These and, are little and, things. And and one part of it was they say, well, for a lot of engineers and software guys who are very introverted, not like Ibrahim, but you know, so, you know, it, it gets them open and gets them talking about their work and how they uh, approach work. Mm. And there's some, you know, it makes sort of sense. And it began, this began, say, 10 or 15 years ago, because a couple of business professors in Europe thought, oh, Legos are really, you know, there's more to this than just games. And, you know, there's some sort of insight to be gained. And they created Lego Serious Play, which it's, it has itself morphed into an entire industry that is so big that there are, this had a schism. And there's the original ad, Lego Serious Play people who hate the other guys because they have the splitters like, you know, the Judean People's Front and the People's Front to Judea. It's like, and they both, they're the, we're the true well, what religion. Are, what are the spin-offs doing that the original isn't? I mean, how many different ways can you try to make a duck with Legos and have it make any sense? <clears throat> Did they get religion? Well, that's the thing. So I met, I, I tracked down a Lego uh, consultant, a trainer. Because the other thing, so a the deal Lego is, consultant. oh, and you can't just do this. You and I can't just tomorrow buy some Legos and go do this. I have some old this. Legos in my yeah, no, no, closet upstairs. Have, I can't go do that. No, you have, to go to, you have to go to seminary. So you have to pay $3,000, $5,000 to get... For my a, 1995 box of you Legos. Do, no, because the real racket, it's like multi-level marketing. The real racket, the real money is made teaching people to be Lego trainers. So those people go in and they spend $5,000. And they do a weekend course to get, and you get a certification, like you pass a test and now you know what you're doing. Because we just spent three days Playing down in Legos. San Diego, well, down in San Diego doing workshops and stuff. And so now we go out and we're low-level Lego trainers. And you can also, you can climb the ladder, you can get higher certifications, so you're now mm -hmm. qualified to do other things with Legos. And this blew my mind, right? Like, I thought someone was pranking me, right? So, but it's true, it's a real thing. And... Um, 
So I, I found a, a trainer, and we met in, at Kepler's in Menlo Park, mm-hmm. actually in the coffee shop next door. I spent half a day, like I, I'm the, the subject. And so the, the first, the easiest, the most basic or common Lego serious play uh, exercise is called Make a Duck. And this six pieces in this little bag. And they're always the same six pieces. And you dump them on a table and to a room of people, you say, okay, make a duck. You have 30 seconds. That's it. Go. And so she did that to me. And I immediately start thinking, like, I'm not very visual. I'm not good at this kind of thing. I can't see how do you fit all six pieces and make a duck out of it. I'm putting them together, but they don't work. There's one red piece that's flat that definitely looks like the bottom, like the feet. Mm. There's another piece that's definitely the head because it has eyes on it, but the others, I don't know. And this is what I'm thinking. And you only have 30 seconds, and the clock is ticking, and I can't do Your Rubik's Cube. blood pressure's cube. going up. I'm completely stressing out, and I'm thinking, this is an IQ test, oh. and, and I'm going to get like a really low score, or, <laughs> or this is some weird psychological thing, and it's like when you go in, you know, if you ever stumble into the the Scientology tent, and you like, mm. and you never come out. Like they're gonna really find out. Like what I'm thinking. What if she can? This woman's gonna know something about me by the way I do my doc. Like you know, and finally she's like, and she's just very calm, and she's just watching. Like like hmm, hmm, like and I'd snap, and she'd be like, hmm, interesting. Like, and and I'm thinking she knows the answer. This woman knows, she's not sharing and she it won't tell you. me. And of course, to her, she's done this a thousand times. Yeah. So. She's just saying, like, look at this poor moron. Like, she sees <laughs> people fail at this every p- possible way, right? Finally, she kind of <clears throat> clears her throat. Okay, 30 seconds are up. And I just say, I take four pieces and I go, here you go. That's all I could do. I'm sorry, the other two, I couldn't figure it out. And she said, who said you had to use all six? I didn't say that. And I'm like, oh, it's a trick Mind question twist. thing. And she had that little, you know, the little twist. smug, and you know, the little smug look there. I was like, who said? I didn't say that. Like, oh, it's a trick question. I get it. So right? anything you give her, as long as you say it's a duck, is a duck. So she says, well, it's your duck. Your duck is different than my duck. Who am I to and say? And his duck is different than their duck. And then we all talk about, like, why is your duck? So I'm enough of a jerk that I'm kind of pissed now. And I said, so I'm like, I'm like, so wait a minute. I could have just taken the red piece and in one second just thrown it back to you and said, there's my duck. It got hit by a car, right? Like, it's a flat red duck. She was like, that would be your duck. That's okay. And I'm like, so you know, if you really did that, right, you're, you're, you're mar- you get the check mark, like, okay, Marcy. She's you know, yeah. first layoff. She's going right. We are she, she not going to hire duck. that person. She, nope. she she laughed at the duck exercise, you know. Yeah. But then I realized it really was useful because it in thirty seconds. Yeah. She gutted me. I'm a fifty-something guy, and that's my whole career has been like fear of failure, fear of being found out, fear that I'm going to get fired, and I brought all that to this, and like you know, and and then you talk about that, but like, which is cool. Except I don't really want to do that with the people I work with, right? I don't, I don't even want to reveal myself like that much. And the thing is that genius and insanity always defeat the norm. So they're building tests around the norm, and it sounds like that's what AI is doing. You're losing genius, and you're losing the crazy folk. And those well, are the things half and half. I, I could take one, leave the other, but, you know. <laughs> but they are the things that No, work, I'm kidding. I know. Juicy, you know? Yeah. And the insane people. Yeah, well, they're the Lego trainers. So I was like, no. And, she, and the other thing is, I really wanted to make fun of her in the book. You know, I, I had, it was kind of like, I'm hoping this person's going to be wacko. But she wasn't. She, she was wasn't. really nice. I yeah. really liked her. She had been a, a really high-level programmer at Bell Labs and stuff. She had an amazing, accomplished career. She's a brilliant woman. Mm. And there, there, so there was some value to it. It's just that I could also imagine being at work, being like, 
I can't believe this is what I do now. I go to work and play with these Legos and have people like open up my head and look inside. And she happened to be very good, but what if the Lego trainer is like, you know, That's most of the numbskulls the you work with, you know what I mean? The basement version like, of a Lego trainer. Yeah, like we had yeah. Agile in my department, but it was like some kid read it, not a kid, some young fellow ran a, <laughs> read one book about Agile and thought he knew what it was. And he said, well, we're gonna do it, but we're only gonna do this part of it. And we're not gonna do it. You know, it's just crazy making. How's that right? expected to work? Yeah. So that's where the, yeah. the title Lab Rats comes from this idea that workplaces now have become sociology experiments. Well, and, and yeah. it's like constant change. And so right. this yeah. constant change is making everybody anxious. You know, if you don't if you don't know what's coming down the pike. I mean, I work in a newsroom and so we have big monitors on all the time and you see change happening right in front of you. You see weird you know, weird things, tragic things, whatever, but there's never there's there's very little calm because things are like this because of the news cycle. And I'm thinking that for people in tech, it's even harder because the mandate is to create things that will change and improve and to do it really quickly. And so the depression rate must be pretty significant because change makes you, makes me anyway, anxious in that way. So how are these people managing to go to their jobs, do their jobs every day, while there's this implicit thing that they are disposable and yep. maybe disposed of in very short order, but we still expect you to have this ready, this taken care of, this put out like by deadline or before. Right. and. Um A lot of them are crashing. That's that's the 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 tragedy is that it's not just like a lot of people wrote me letters about feeling psychologically abused at work mm -hmm. and feeling trauma that lasted for a year or more after they left the job, but a lot just crash and commit suicide. Right? You have a horrifying story about a man who worked at Uber. Yeah who killed himself because he felt like everybody was laughing at him and they were all telling him he was stupid. Five months in, he was a... And that was his dream job. Right. His, name's, uh, his name was Joseph Thomas. He was 34. Mm. Apparently, I didn't know, but apparently really smart, talented programmer. And he was working, I think, at LinkedIn. He had moved out from Atlanta to be a programmer, had this great career. And as you know, uh, software engineers are worth their weight in gold right now. They can't find enough. And when they do get them, they get treated really well in tech companies. They have different perks. They have different offices. They are really treated really well. And, so he, and they get recruited constantly. So he got recruited, and he could have gone to Apple or Uber. And he chose Uber, and I think it was because there's a big pot of gold at Uber. Uber was the biggest mm -hmm. unicorn in the world, and you get... You know, you don't get paid just in a salary and free candy. You get options. Stuck up, and yeah. if you stay four years, the, the fully best. And if the company goes public at a much higher valuation than your options are priced at, you really have enough money. You're, you're done for life. Like, mm -hmm. you can, and if you get in the right company, like, if you got in Google early, if you got in Facebook early, great. So he went That's the Microsoft model, right? The people who went as secretaries and as programmers yeah. and whatever, and then all of a sudden, you know, leave as... Multi-millionaires. Well, yeah. So he went to Uber and what Uber. What percentage of the workforce did that person? How many, 
get rich like that, yeah. tiny. That's the thing. It's like yeah. impossible. You hear a lot about it because those are all the stories you hear, but it's infinitesimally small. And so it's a very unrealistic dream. And it becomes a very powerful cudgel because you have to stay four years to get your shares. You have to stay one year to get even the first quarter of them. And you invest a quarter every year. Well, you've, you have first year you don't get any, and then you get 25%, and then they generally go out, like, I guess, monthly or quarterly for the next four years. And you still yeah, or you get an offer and you say, that's not enough, I want more equity. So, but it becomes this very powerful weapon. In a normal job, if you get fired, if your boss is a jerk, you can quit and like, okay, you, you, you're not going to get paid. You could do something else, yeah. Yeah, you go get another job, like you lose your salary, but these become golden handcuffs, especially and a lot of these people are young. And yeah, they want to buy a house, they want to put their kids through college. And it becomes this thing, and then you, if you if you combine that with mm -hmm. like a sadistic manager mm -hmm. who wants to wring the most they can out of you and just burn you out and get rid of you in two years, which is great for them because you only vest half your shares and you probably don't even buy those half because you don't have the cash, you have mm -hmm. to pony up the cash. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's a way to use options as a way to really create this incentive in front of people that then allows you to do anything to them. And stories came out later about how stressful Uber was. You get called in the middle of the night, you got yelled at, you got berated, things went wrong. And <clears throat> this guy went in, a happy, normal guy, and five months later went into his garage and shot himself. Mm -hmm. He had a wife, two little kids, and it became a story because his widow uh, filed a... She sued a Uber, right? Well, it wasn't even... It wasn't... I, yeah, I, it's, or it intent was, to sue? She, it was a, a labor complaint with the mm -hmm. board, but they settled. I think they, they went into negotiations. Nevertheless, I remember, I don't, I guess because, you know, my kids are a little older than his kids. He had two sons, and this one picture of them that was on a lot of the stories. And I, I tried to interview her, but by then they had stopped doing interviews because I think they were in negotiations. Settlement, and they did an yeah. NDA. But this picture went around. His wife was this, like, beautiful young woman and these two boys. And I think it was a picture. I don't know if they shot it then because they looked so happy. Mm -hmm. And... Kids are all just, and you just, uh, even thinking about that picture, just, it's overwhelming. And he's not alone. There was a guy at Amazon who found out, Amazon is another incredibly stressful mm -hmm. place where um, the Times did a story a couple years ago where someone's quoted, like, everyone I worked with, I saw cry at their desk. Like, it is now at Amazon, perfectly normal, par for the course to see the dude you work with sitting at his desk sobbing. And like everybody crying. thinks Jeff Bezos is such a sweetie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> but no, so, and you're plugged, literally, you're plugged into what they call this performance optimization algorithm. Mm. Everything's data driven, all decisions are data driven, and Amazon office workers call themselves Amabots, and uh. they try to be the best Amabot they can be. And so it creates this incredible stress. So a guy at Amazon was put on a performance improvement plan, a PIP, which is what they call mm -hmm. it. When you get pipped, it basically means you're going to get fired. You've got warning. six weeks. Yeah, yeah but mm -hmm. it's really your route. And he begged to be moved into another department. They said no. He wrote a letter to Bezos, and I think either the whole company or his department emailed everybody and went up to the roof of the building and jumped off. Uh. Another one happened at Apple. And these are people that I think from the outside, well, oh, you got the good jobs. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, you're not some schlumpy reporter like me just begging to get freelance work. Mm -hmm. You got a job at Amazon, right? And, <clears throat> and you think, well, what? Like, the, fact that the Joseph Thomas story, I still find fascinating. Someday I'm hoping his wife will talk to me because what 
happens in five months? How does a guy go into a building and five months later come out that? Like, that's amazing to me. And he was a strong, by all accounts, a strong, happy guy who had no problems. And that, and then... What is it that causes it that you can't absorb? Right? Self-esteem. You, you destroy your self-esteem, yeah, and you, you, you can, you just, you, you're, yeah, and he, the, the head of engineering at, at Uber, in a separate story, not related to this, mm -hmm. but after this guy had killed himself, his, his suicide, nobody found out about it for a year, his wife much late, well, only when his wife tried to pursue it legally did it come out, yeah. so it had happened, but the head of engineering gave this thing about, yeah, we have a really stressful culture at Uber, like we, and we're proud of it, and we think it's great. And he said, you know, I look at it like, I compare it to the way a diamond is formed. You know, you take yeah. carbon and you put it deep down in the earth and you press and squeeze and squeeze and you raise it to super high temperatures for billions and millions of years, and then if it works, you know, you get a diamond. And so our engineering culture is one where most people can't hack it, they're not resilient enough, but the few who can, they're diamonds. And you know, if you survive at Uber, you can work anywhere. Mm. And I was like, do you even hear yourself? Look at yourself and say that again. Sometimes is, when I was a journalist. It's worth the price. I used to say, yeah. you, know, you know, have someone you're interviewing and they, you know they're totally lying to you, like political yeah. lies. Do you ever say to them, like, I want you to go back. Is there a mirror near you? Go back and look in the mirror and say that again. What you just watch, said to me, say it again, but look at yourself <laughs> when you say that, right? Yeah. Like, like no self-awareness. They think this is great. And a certain kind of, I hate to say it, but young male, right, mm -hmm. I think, almost gets off on that. And they sell this workaholism thing like, the grind, hustle, grind, repeat, bro. Mm -hmm. And it's like, these aren't, you're not gonna get rich on this. The VCs are gonna get rich on this company, mm -hmm. but they want, of course they want you to grind. You know, they want you to like. You're, you're doing it <clears throat> for them, yeah. Oh yeah, and there's like this sort of macho code of like, I can do this, I can hack it. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a weird, sick thing, but they've fetishized, they've made workaholism into like a desirable lifestyle choice. It's a weird thing. So that's the prevailing thing now, but I'm guessing, I'm hoping that this is sort of pendulum-like. You know, you go from yeah. being taken care of by very paternal companies like, you know, Forbes or Time, to having the, the tech bros do what they're doing now. Does it swing in the other direction or swing back? Are they, are they starting to discover that actually treating your workers humanely may accrue more benefits than doing it the bot way? Yes. And, and yeah. can you give us examples of successful companies that are doing that? Yeah. So one of my favorites is the guy I just mentioned, DHH. He goes by his initials. He's a famous techie who created this uh, development tool called Ruby on Rails that's mm -hmm. used very widely. Twitter, I think, was created on Ruby, right? It's, everybody uses it. And and it's open source. He didn't make money on that. But he is a partner in a tech company in Chicago called Basecamp. And they make project management software that you might use. It's used, very widely used. Mm -hmm. And these two guys, um, the two co-founders, have rules like we work 40 hours a week, all of us. There's 50 or 60 people in the company. And that's it. No more. Go home. Only in the summer, we only do 32. We all take Fridays off. And we have a three-day weekend. Go be with your kids. Have fun. Do your stuff. And they have very high customer retention, I mean, employee retention. I would imagine. Um, yeah, right? Yeah. They pay really, really well because they, they actually never took VC money. Mm -hmm. They sell their software for real money and they make enormous profits. 
they profit share with the employees, they pay them really well. If you, if you stay more than a year, they give you a paid vacation every year and you get, I don't know, four weeks of time off. They fly everybody, in. a lot of people are remote, fly in for a week every year to Chicago and we just like hang out and talk and be friends with each other. They all know about each other's lives. Huh. Um, they have a quiet office. They, they don't and have And they're little, home. right? They're like about they're 50 people. 50, 60 people. Yeah. And they are so good at this that they have now started writing books about how they approach work. One is called Rework. The other is called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which just came out. And they run seminars. They have a little thing where people from all over the world pay to come in and say, well, wait a minute, how do you, how do you, how do you guys get away with this? They have no Slack, no email. They don't allow them. Right? I want to go so you work can't, there. You can't, get, you can't get on someone else's calendar because the scourge of corporate life is now I send you an email saying, right. oh, I saw you have an opening calendar on Thursday at 2. And so yeah. you go like, yes, and now your Thursday is blown. So yeah. they don't allow that. Yeah. Nobody can see. You can't get on my calendar. And, and they even say, like, okay, in the summer, we're only doing 30 hours, 32 hours. If that means we're going to have to slip a feature, we can't get it into this, that's okay. We'll get it next rev. Like, it's just software. Nobody cares. Like, mm -hmm. Well, I don't. I've never talked to them about universal basic income, but yeah, they're like 50, 60 people. But yeah, they, it's funny. Well, I mean, they could be as probably as large as they want. They don't want, want to expand. They've yeah, but they don't want to be huge. They also don't care about growing really fast. They sold off. Yeah. At one point, they had four products, and then they realized, ah, oh, if we really want to pursue all these, we're going to have to hire those people, and it's going to get big. They're just concentrating on one. Let's just sell one. So they sold the other three off. They just, they just really. Hit. One of his great quotes to me was. Uh, people say, well, you know, Steve Jobs would never become Steve Jobs. He did this. And he's like, I don't care. I don't want to be Steve Jobs. I don't want to be Apple. I'm happy being me. And like, this is, yeah, this is what I, this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm doing. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of uh, many years ago now, I went up to Ventura to interview Yvonne Chouinard at uh, oh, right. yeah. Patagonia. And we were sitting in his office and he has a couple of boards in his office and his wetsuits hanging up to dry. And so I asked him about the work week and he goes, eh, we work hard. And then, you know, when surf's up, we take off for a couple of hours and we go surfing. I'm like, you take off for a couple of hours and go surfing? He goes, it's all going to be here when we get back. So we just finish it up then. He was one of the first people to put in on-site daycare because he said, well, I, a lot of my people have kids. And, you know, they care about their kids and they'd like to check up on them. And so if they're not stressed out about daycare, if they can bring them here, if we can take that off of them, then they're thinking more creatively about some other things. And it would be stupid of me not to do it. And it seems so sane, except for many, many years, he was one <coughs> of the few people who would do that. And he makes tremendous profits. It's an amazing company. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and he wrote a book. Laying his ideas out, and it's a great, great title. It's called "Let My People Go Surfing." Surfing. <laughs> Let my people go surfing, and it was exactly that. Like, yeah, yeah. surf's up, we go. Yeah. Or and he even says, "I see Patagonia. It's not a company about selling fleece jackets or whatever. It's about this isn't for me. This is an experiment. Mm -hmm. I want to prove that capitalism can work without." harming people that you can and because people always say well you couldn't do that you wouldn't make money and he's like we make money we're all happy we have a good time and uh we're not the biggest company in the world but they actually have i think a couple thousand or a few thousand employees mm -hmm. yeah and he's like i i really just want i'm running the company because he, he's not the ceo anymore he's sort of emeritus right. now but he's like i'm just doing this because i want to be able to prove to other people so the other people will Start doing this. Maybe he, take the hint his real motivation is to change capitalism, mm -hmm. not to, um, 
not to, not to make as much money as he possibly. He's probably got enough money, right? Well, and that's like your uh, DHH guys, too. The, the, the money isn't the ultimate gratification. It's nice to have money. I'm sure they like to have nice things, but they're not looking to treble their bottom line. They're looking to run their company efficiently <coughs> and have their employees be happy about working there and maybe stay with them. That's the, kind of the essential point of this book is that what really needs to change is, is capitalism itself. That shareholder capitalism, which sort of originates in 1970, well, it's always in 1970 with a Milton Friedman essay, which said the point, the only point of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders, for its investors, and yeah. that has gone way, way, way like to, to a really mm -hmm. wicked extreme, especially in Silicon Valley, and with predictable bad consequences like income inequality. Mm -hmm. And you see people like Yvonne Chouinard and others, the base camp guys, some gig economy guys that I write about, some venture capitalists who are saying, let's swing back the other way. And uh, it's essentially, we need yeah, a new capitalism. There's a group called Zebras Unite, run by four women mm -hmm. who are, I just had lunch with one this week in San Francisco. I mean, these women are brilliant so smart, they all run startups and they have this organization. And again, it's like, how do we spread the word? How do we have a conference? Because there's other people like us who want to build a company but want to do it ethically. And the interesting thing to me is about, I started to write a book about work and the workplace, and then I realized that really the workplace, if you write about work, you're writing about everything because it's, it's where labor and capital meet, mm -hmm. right? Which is the, really the big story, right? How does labor, how do labor and capital engage with one another, how the employers and employees engage with one another, and there are rules of engagement in that arena, and the rules keep changing in ways that disadvantage workers, but that when you talk about work, what you're really talking about is people's financial well-being, their physical and psychological well-being, their ability to educate their kids, their ability to save for retirement. Then you're talking really about their politics because how they're treated at work, as we've seen, mm -hmm. if you immiserate millions of people, it influences their politics, they lash out, they maybe make bad decisions, um, which then in turn in, informs international relations and you have people trying to build walls and you know tariff and have trade wars, so it, it ripples out. So what begins with like, how do I treat my employees becomes, when you talk about making the world a better place or changing the world, that's how you're changing the world, like how you treat if it's five people or 5,000 people or 500,000, how do you treat them informs the whole world is an incredibly powerful thing. That's the, and the cool thing about the Yvonne Schwinnard's words, their ideas, actually corporations, companies can be a force for good. That's how you change the world. It's not how you change the world by making Facebook. You change the world by creating. By actually doing something for yeah. the people that you're responsible for. And you, yes, so yeah. that, that is, so it's a, so in their, in their mind, profit isn't bad. Profit is actually great. Mm -hmm. you, you make profit, that allows you to, to treat employees well. So sort of the first principle of that is make a profit and, and then build on that and be sustainable. Um, but yeah, so there's an idea that so if... Yeah. How, yeah, like how is the wealth shared? Like I, I, had, I was ranting about Jeff Bezos when he was fighting the $15 an hour thing. Yeah. And he didn't want to, and Bernie Sanders is saying, come on, you should pay 15 an hour. Bezos is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Our warehouses are great. And my first thought was, Jeff Bezos, you'd have to go work in one of his shipping centers That's for a week. That's what I was thinking, yeah. 
That would be great. You he do would get these CEOs who start from the, you know, do it from the bottom up, who have a very different exactly. idea of what workers' existences are. Yeah, and Hilton does that. Hilton, the CEO of Hilton began as like a mm -hmm. summer intern who was cleaning toilets and, work, you know, as a janitor. Mm -hmm. And he makes all of his executives spend one week of the year either working as a, a cleaning person or in the, uh, you know, a janitor in the kitchen, do some work on the front lines and know what their job is, know mm -hmm. what they do. And Managed by Q is a gig economy company that's like the Uber for janitors. Mm -hmm. Their rule is, I don't care who you are, if you're the CTO, the CEO, we clean. And they go out, they make these people go out like on an overnight shift Good. and clean offices. And because it's kind of hard to screw your workers when you, you know them now. That's a face, that's a guy with a name and you know his kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a really, another really powerful principle of these that you're, you're in next to those people. But yeah, I really thought if Bezos had to go work in a shipping center, first of all, he wouldn't last a day. I mean, and you know, he looks like the Terminator now because he's bulked up and yeah. all this stuff. You know, yeah. you wouldn't, dude, you would not last a day. You give him a bottle, say, oh, there's no bathroom breaks. You have to pee in the bottle as you're running around with the thing. Like imagine yeah. the CEO having to live with the indignity of that and then come out you know, so, and I was ranting about him on Twitter, and a guy I worked with at Forbes, who then, which is a conservative magazine, and he went on to become a talking head on Fox Business News. So he's an asshole, right? So he, he, um, he wrote, because I was like, this guy is the richest person in the history of the world. Why is he fighting $15 an hour? Why did he fight paying a little tiny tax to help homeless people in Seattle? But mm -hmm. he fought it tooth and nail. And my friend is like, well, surely you don't resent him because, I mean, the, you know, he, he's created wealth and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, he didn't create it's wealth. Money. No, yeah. he didn't deliver the packages. He didn't work in the shipping center. Yeah, he did something. Mm -hmm. But he, he didn't, those people created the wealth. Why don't they get some of it? You know what I mean? And we've lost that idea. We've totally lost the yeah. idea that, like, I mean, because I, I thought, like, oh, he's created the wealth? I'll tell you what. Watch all those warehouse workers walk out tomorrow and stay out for two days and watch what happens to Amazon. And I don't know why they don't organize, why they don't strike. They're afraid. Yeah, they're, they're afraid, afraid they'll, they'll never get anything else. Like, this is the yeah. best you can do. Yeah. Same thing with Uber. Imagine the Uber's drivers all tomorrow said, that's it, all over the world, boom, we shut down. It wouldn't last a week. Yeah. I don't think. I think they are, actually. They are going to organize? And no, I'm yes. sorry. Yeah, we talked. No, we're we're, we're just yammering. Sorry, on. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess because I've been Yeah, people more important than the product, right? Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the whole last part of my book is about that, about people who are building, who are actually out doing that, because I find them very inspiring. And um, 
yeah, no, I think that's, that is the hope, right? That, that people will just start building their own things. I don't think you're gonna change the culture of Facebook, right? I mean, Google is a powerful thing when they walked out, but, you know, they all walked back in, you know, but they, but, and in fact, Google, and if you know this, Google has two classes of workers, most of these companies do. Amazon has a lot of them. So there are Google employees who have one badge, they're actually full employees, and then there's other people who are Google contractors, and they have a different badge. And everybody knows internally, like, which badge are you, right? And, <clears throat> and it's a way, just like anything else, of shifting more workload to people who get less benefits, less, less money. pay, less mm -hmm. money, right? And because, you know, Google's, they're struggling. They don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. No, they, they, they've got a lot of money. So, um, and we'll the, the number of contractors at Google keeps going up and up and up. And just recently, Google, it, this, they crossed. Google now has more contract workers than it has actual workers, right? And... I was giving a talk at an event earlier this week and there were some Google people there and I said, so they were employees. Do you think you guys would ever lock arms with those contractors? Because you know it's unfair. Hmm. They were like, eh, no. <laughs> like, no, we wouldn't. We would not. At least they were honest about it. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Right. But there were some like developers or Facebook employees that did stand there and say, hey, which they see as the vendor sees as the client. But I think they did, they are starting to feel that solidarity. Yeah, And I write in this book about a couple of attempts that. It's not really, or, or it's not really unionization, but but collectives like the tech coalition, and but the, and they're more aimed at <clears throat> not striking for pay, or using their influence or leverage for pay, but for political things. So we don't want the company to do business with the DoD, say for example. So mm -hmm. we're going to organize and use our half because you cannot afford to let your engineers walk out, and they know how valuable they are, they know how important they are. So they kind of, I think, start to understand the power they have, um, but. It's still, I think we're still far from that, but I think it might be the first steps toward that kind of activity. You know, uh, Tesla, for example, has been trying to unionize the workers there, because a lot of them are, are auto workers in the plant where they make the Teslas, and they have been trying to unionize, and Tesla keeps fighting it and trying to uh, break it down, and it hasn't really come to that, mm -hmm. you know, come, baseball bats, you know, but I mean, like, but it, I, I have a feeling it will, you know, I, I don't know how those guys sit there going, First, Tesla loses tremendous amounts of money. Like Tesla is is a money hole, right? But they recently turned a profit, but mostly they lose money. But Elon Musk is worth something like thirty billion, or I don't know, some huge amount of money. And how do you sit there in the factory making his cars and and get paid fourteen dollars an hour? Or yeah, you know, they might be paid better, but yeah, they're, yeah. and they're, they're unsafe. So they they're trying to unionize and get get a little tiny bit more. But and I think so. I think they're starting to wake up to that. You see. The haves and, and, and interesting enough, the Bay Area to me now starts to look like a, a like a, a banana republic. You have these unfathomably wealthy people living up in the hills in Atherton in like two hundred million dollar estates that, you know, are, are a replica of a Japanese imperial palace. Like mm -hmm. literally, they like, all just spend money. Like Xanadu's are up in the hills, 
and then there's a growing, growing, growing number of people who are just barely hanging on, like living in campers and being pushed out of the campers. You know, it's it's really or people who are sort of in the not at, at that level, but who are living so far away from work that they spend more time commuting to the jobs that they have than they do at the job because they can't afford to live anywhere near the jobs are. Yeah, so the, almost like the, the Bay Area, which is the, the ground zero for that whole industry, is itself the tip of the spear where you can see the uh, microcosm of what's going to happen. Like, here's why this whole model doesn't work. Look around you. Like, look around the situation you're in. Um, and you know, it's sort of falling apart. The other, the other thing that's really interesting is Silicon Valley hasn't produced a really truly successful company in 14 years. So if you define success as operates at scale and turns a profit, the last company you can find in Silicon Valley that does that is Facebook. This is 2004. Hmm. Almost all of the IPOs since 2011 are companies that have never made it a dime of profit. So the model, I think the other thing is, even Peter Thiel said this week, there are no more good ideas in Silicon Valley. It's played out. Another. No, that's why it's moved here. Yeah, you, yeah. You, good luck with him. And yeah. then, <laughs> and then the another Silicon Valley venture capitalist said this week that the the startup economy has become a Ponzi scheme. This is literally a Ponzi scheme. It, it's VCs put in, and and so people are starting to realize that this is hollowness at the at the center of this, and. Um, so the workers themselves there are pushing back against it. They've figured it out, right? So it's um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting situation, and it's it really is like yeah, like I said, a microcosm for the the society at large. So let me ask you a final question. We've pretty much been gloom and doom for the past hour. Yeah. Do you do, have you seen things that give you hope? What do you think is oh, going to yeah. happen when your kids enter the workforce? <sighs> I know that one really freaks me out. Yeah. First of all, I wish they would enter the workforce. They're only 13, but <laughs> I'm trying all, to tell them, like, teens. go get a damn job, yeah. you know? Um, but, and they're like, we're 13. I'm like, I worked when I was 13, you know? But they're, you know. Um, there are laws about that now, Dan. <laughs> there are, that's what they say. There are laws, Dad. There's labor laws. It's child labor. I'm like, I'm, mow a lawn. I'm not talking about, like, work in a sweatshop. I'm just mow a lawn, you know? That would be good. Shovel snow. Yeah, shovel snow. Go get it, you know. There isn't anymore. You know my well, kids. They're so change, yeah. spoiled. They're so... Anyway. But, uh, who's spoiling them, Dad? Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Um, so, I don't know what the work for, what the what the... That, what that contract's going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, in Silicon Valley, they call it the new compact. There's a new compact between labor and capital, between, and it says you have no job security, you're on a tour of duty, you're not going to stay here a year, year and a half, we're a team, not a family, we're going to fire you at will. You know, and, they all, and that's what you should accept. We have everything, you have nothing. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It, it was, it's designed by venture capitalists. It's a, it's a new compact that was created by the investors. They're like, yeah, of course, it's great for you. But I think it will swing back. I also think, like when I talk to my kids who are like eighth graders now, I have twins, I think they're living in the most exciting century, you know, probably in human history. We won't, we won't, well, I'm, I won't live to see it. You might, Peter Thiel's going to be immortal. He's, he's taking pills and stuff, and he's going to get blood transfusion, he wants to live forever. But no, we won't see it, right? But I do think, like, the, even now you see, like, the breakthroughs in genomics. I have a friend who works in that mm -hmm. field. They're really starting to do really cool things with AI, with genomics. Like, it isn't all bad. It isn't all the poor guy who gets fired by the machine. <laughs> I heard a story a couple of weeks ago of uh, how AI applied to genomic data 
saved the life of a newborn baby who had a rare genetic disease, and it's very easy to treat. It's just almost a needle in a haystack to diagnose. To to so AI it, yeah. and went through it, narrowed down the diagnosis, bam, the kid's fine. Mm. And I met the, the, the AI scientist who wrote the software who met the baby who's now six months old uh. and then broke down sobbing and thought like, okay, this is pretty hard to leave this job. Like this is pretty fulfilling. So there's great stories like that. So I think, I keep telling my kids, man, like, just wait, like you, and you can be part of this. Like if you, you know, study the right stuff, you can get in on this. You can be the guys making this. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really exciting time to be a young person, not to be a young journalist, maybe. Yeah. No, but not but not uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. There, there's yeah. going to be, I mean, a really, really amazing century. So I hope, my hope for my kids is they're going to do interesting, exciting work that will, you know, that they will find fulfilling, and then I hope they'll also be able to make a living and support themselves doing it. I also think we're sort of in a weird transition now. It's a, people call it the fourth industrial revolution. We just happen to be in the, in the washing machine. You're like, oh, there's this, we're going from this model to some model that is poorly mm -hmm, defined. Mm -hmm. Right now, everybody's trying everything. That's why work is so experimental. And there's all this destruction happening. At the same time, there's all this creation happening. I think the kids might come out the other side in a more stable period than we're in right now, but um, I hope so. Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. We're Thanks done. for coming, guys. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Karen, too. You're, you know, very good sport. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.